0: Here's your host, Sakar Cowley.
1: Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Uh, Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Brendan Hall. Uh, Brendan is with Hall CPA, and he is uh, the certified uh, CPA and a national speaker and founder of Real Estate CPA. Uh, their company does a lot of webinars and speaking engagements around, you know, tax benefits mm-hmm. of real estate. And we are here to kind of learn more about it. Uh, Brendan and his company themselves invest uh, as well through Passively and also have many investors who invest along them. Uh, Brendan has a previous career background from PricewaterhouseCoopers and Ernst & Young. And after that, he launched his own uh, company. So welcome to the show, Brendan. I appreciate you spending time.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you
1: inviting me on. Awesome. Uh, Give us a quick background, Brendan, as to how you got started and kind of shifted towards, uh, you know, the CPA practice and also the real estate side of things.
2: Yeah, so I started in, uh, I guess the journey kind of started in 2013. I was working at PricewaterhouseCoopers and was in their consulting practice and I wasn't really enjoying it. Uh, so I started looking for a way out. I found real estate, as most people do. How do you get out of your corporate job? And boom, invest in real estate, get, <laughs> get the cash flow. And that was the original goal. Through that, I found Bigger Pockets. So I was doing some research and stumbled across Bigger Pockets, which is this big online forum for real estate investors. And I started uh, started asking questions, but then started answering tax questions. So people mm-hmm. were asking a lot of tax questions, and. I had a lot of fun, uh, fun answering as many questions as I possibly could, especially since I viewed my PwC job as very boring and <laughs> uh, this was providing me a little bit of an outlet. So sure. that that's kind of how I got into real estate to begin with. And then the CPA firm just sort of spawned on that. I mean, I was just answering tons of questions all the time and people eventually started asking if I was taking on clients and I eventually said yes and uh, the rest is history.
1: Nice, nice. Uh, How does your firm look like today? Like, you know, how many clients and, uh, you know, office employees and all that good stuff?
2: So we have a team of 15. And we are currently in the process of adding three more. So we'll soon be 18. Wow. We Mm -hmm. have a little over 500 clients across the United States. They are Mm -hmm. all over the place, West Coast, East Coast. We are a 100% remote CPA firms, we don't have an office. People don't mail us documentation, and and we do everything on Zoom, everything on audio, everything on video, Uh, and my staff is virtual too. So I have a completely remote team, and they live all over the country. Uh, So that's what we look like today. But every client is in real estate, every single Uh one, Mm -hmm. in some capacity. We work with some really small landlords, and we also work with like ten-figure funds. So, uh, so really large shops as well, and we'll typically provide the entire suite of financial services at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of my team invests in real estate too. So collectively between the 15 of us, we have 300 units. Nice. <laughs> and I think it's a cool differentiator when we're talking about uh, CPA firms.
1: Nice, 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 nice to see a blend of uh, someone who has in-depth experience as to what happens on the ground and also, you know, kind of see the tax benefits uh, uh, that come with it as well. So for our passive listeners, uh, Brendan, uh, you know, give us uh, some background about, uh, you know, what are the different uh, sort of investor types you see and what sort of uh, different uh, benefits and limitations that you see when it comes to uh, taxes in general?
2: Yeah, good question. So, you typically have people that are actively involved in real estate, and then you have people that are passively involved in real estate. And the folks that are actively involved in real estate will usually yield better tax results than those that are just passively involved in real estate. So, if I were to, if I had like a W 2 job and I went and put $100,000 into a real estate syndicate, Mm-hmm. my my cash flow stream from the syndicate will be tax sheltered but i'm not going to get any additional tax benefits from that investment mm-hmm. whereas if i'm investing in real estate actively and uh more more than my any other activity that i have going on so that's my main gig is investing sure. in real estate and then i go invest in a real estate syndicate well now not only is that Is that uh, income stream tax advantageous, but whatever loss passes back to me from that investment, I can usually claim against all of my other income. So there's a lot of there's a lot of rules around passive activity and and the active investors in real estate will usually come out ahead.
1: I see. I see. What are the limitations for passive folks in terms of, you know, how much they can uh, sort of depreciate or how much they can write off and things like that?
2: Sure. So the so section 469 of the tax code, this is where all the passive activity rules are defined. So section 469 says, in summary, um, by default, all rental activities are passive. Mm-hmm. And passive losses can only offset passive income or gain on sale from another passive activity. So if I have two rentals, Rental A generates income. Rental B generates a loss. They're both passive by default per section mm-hmm. 469. And rental B's loss can offset rental A's income. If I sell rental A at a gain, rental B's loss can still offset rental A's gain. Mm-hmm. So, But it's still all passive. So that's what sure. section 469 mm-hmm. says. Every rental activity is passive.
0: Sure,
2: There are two exceptions to the rule. The first exception is if you earn less than $100,000, you can take a passive activity loss allowance up to $25,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Now, you only get the $25,000 if you're actually earning less than $100,000, mm-hmm. but it's going to be phased out. That $25,000 loss allowance will be phased out as your income, as your income increases above $100,000 and mm-hmm. approaches one fifty. dollars once I it see. hits one hundred and fifty, the $25,000 loss allowance is gone. So it's completely phased out. That's exception number one to the passive activity rules. The, sec- sec- the exception number two to the passive activity rules is qualifying as a real estate professional mm-hmm. for tax purposes. And that's the apex of tax planning. That's what everybody wants to hit, right? The real sure. estate professional status. It's a lot harder to hit than most people will tell you. Sure. Uh, and it is actually relatively black and white. A lot of people think that it's very gray and it's not very well defined. And that's not true once you read all the tax court cases on the topic. But, um, but, but the point is that that is an exception to the rule. So mm-hmm. section 469 says all rentals are passive. Passive losses can only offset passive income unless you earn less than 150K. That's exception number one. Or you qualify as a real estate professional. That's exception number two. Mm-hmm. Now, why would we care about an exception? Mm-hmm. We care about the exception because if we qualify for one of these exceptions, we can take our rental losses and we can offset our other income streams. Because what we're doing is we're reclassifying them. We're pulling them out of that passive activity bucket. We're putting them into the non-passive bucket. Uh, and now I can, I can have a rental that generates a $10,000 loss and I can offset my W-2 income or my spouse's W-2 income with that loss. So it becomes much more powerful if I can qualify for one of the exceptions.
1: Wow. That's awesome. So basically you're saying from, uh, if I were to maybe categorize uh, categorize at a high level, so you got the passive, the active, and then I guess uh, on top, the apex, as you said, is the professional status wherein you can pretty much uh, write off and come right through uh, your earned income and technically can also pay no tax uh, basically.
2: Yeah, so it, the the active piece was was my way of sort of talking about material material participation, which we don't have to like dive into. But sure. in mm-hmm. reality, you have either a passive activity or you have a non passive activity. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. rentals are always passive. I see mm-hmm. the two exceptions again: earn less than one hundred fifty thousand dollars or qualifies a real estate professional. If you qualify as a real estate professional. there is a second hurdle which we can dive into, but you have to qualify as a real estate professional, you have to materially participate in the rental activities, and then you have a non-passive rental activity.
1: Sure, sure, sure. Now somebody like me, uh, Brendan, who has uh, literally 200 properties, manages this on uh, on a full-time basis. I mean, uh, we own our own property management and construction company and stuff like that. So we qualify that as uh, sort of in the professional bucket for years now. what, what are those exceptions that you're talking about? Uh, what is that hurdle you said?
2: Well, so, so the real estate professional rule that that is an exception to the passive activity loss limitations described in Section 469 of the tax code. So what that means is if you qualify for an exception, in mm-hmm. your case, your 200 units, if those generate losses, you can use those losses against all of your other income that you earn. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. didn't qualify for the exception, then those 200 units that generate losses you're not going to be able to use those losses to offset your property management income. Or if you, if you have a spouse with W2, you can't offset that income either. But because you, you qualify as a real estate professional for tax purposes, because you materially participate in your rental real estate activities, your combined rental real estate activities, then the losses are non-passive. So you can go and run cost segregation studies on your properties. You can find ways to generate larger losses current year losses that you can then use to offset all of your other income, your business income, your W-2 income, uh, mm-hmm. gain on sale of stock, well, whatever other income you have, you can offset it with your rental losses.
1: Awesome, thank you so much for clarifying that. Now, uh, Brendan, a lot of times, you know, like high uh, high income earner professionals are looking for some tax shelter. Their main motivation is to, uh, you know, how can I reduce taxes and things like that, right? Uh, what are some of the strategies you can suggest uh, that they can do to perhaps uh, you know reduce their tax burden
2: sure so the first one is to just invest in real estate <laughs> <laughs> if you invest in real estate if i buy a rental property i can earn $10,000 in cash flow mm-hmm. but i can tell the irs that i actually lost $2,000 mm-hmm. because of a little component called depreciation Mm-hmm. Which is a non-cash expense that I get to claim every single year as a benefit of owning the property, right? So mm-hmm. in this example, if I cash flow ten thousand, and if we're just keeping it super simple, um, and I have depreciation of twelve thousand, then I can tell the IRS I actually lost two grand. But ten thousand dollars hit my pocket, so I do have the ten thousand dollars. Sure, mm-hmm. I'm just telling the IRS that I lost two, mm-hmm. and that's just That's just the way that we can shelter rental real estate income streams. Uh, via depreciation, so to answer your question, strategy number one is simply just buy real estate because if I can do that ten times, mm-hmm. now I have one hundred thousand dollars in cash flow but i 'm telling the IRS that I lost twenty, and even if i can 't use the loss that 's still beneficial for me because i 'm not paying tax on the one hundred thousand dollars i 've completely sheltered it right and this is warren buffett 's approach to investing right Warren Buffett pays millions and millions and millions in taxes every year. Right. But compared to his total income, it's very low. And that's why everybody says, Oh, Warren Buffett pays less taxes than the secretary. No, he doesn't pay less taxes than the secretary, but the taxes he pays compared to his total income is less than his secretary's ratio. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I have a $200,000 W2 job and I pay $50,000 in tax on that, that's a 25% effective tax rate. That's Right. Sorry, $50,000 tax on the two hundred. dollars that's a 25% effective tax rate.
0: Right.
2: But if I add a $100,000 cash flow stream that I'm not paying tax on by investing in real estate, now I've earned $300,000, but I'm only paying $50,000 in taxes on my mm-hmm. original W-2 income.
0: Right. So now
2: whatever that turns out to be, maybe like 18% or something, my effective tax rate has been reduced from sure. 25 to 18 or 19%. Mm-hmm. So first strategy is just invest in real estate. If you want immediate tax benefits, though, strategy number two is to buy short-term rentals.
1: Interesting. Mm
2: -hmm. Yep. A short-term rental is a rental activity that is uh, the average tenant stay is less than seven days or it's less than 30 and you provide substantial services. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to focus on less than 30 and substantial services, though, because most investors don't, don't provide substantial services to their guests. So we're going to focus on less than seven days. Mm -hmm. The way that you figure this out is you look at all of the rental days that you, that you, that that was, that somebody was occupying the property and then you divide it by the number of tenants that stayed in the property. So if I have 70 rental days Mm -hmm. and 10, 10 uh, tenants that have stayed, then my average stay is seven days.
1: You Average it out. Basically you're saying.
2: Average it out. Yep. Relatively simple. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that this is a unique piece of the code is because short-term rentals are excluded from the definition of a rental activity under section 469 of the code. Mm -hmm. Now remember if we, if we rewind this podcast back 15 minutes, we were just talking about section 469 and remember section 469 says all rentals are passive Mm -hmm. to get around the passive activity rules. You have to earn less than $150,000 or you have to qualify as a real estate professional and materially participate in your rental real estate activities. Mm -hmm. Well, if a short-term rental is not included in the definition of rental activity per section 469, then that means that a short-term rental falls outside of the scope of section 469. Meaning... Mm -hmm that you don't have to qualify as a real estate professional in order to claim your losses. You just have to materially participate in the rental real estate activity. And Mm -hmm. it's a much lower bar. It's also something that people with full-time jobs can qualify for. I see with full-time job, people with full-time jobs can't qualify for real estate professional status because to be a real estate professional, you have to spend 750 hours in a real property trader business and Mm -hmm. more than half your time. So if you have a full-time job and you spend 2000 hours in your full-time job, you have to spend an additional 2001 hours in real estate and that will never fly if you're audited (laughs) tax court. Right? (laughs) Right. Right. So you have a short term rental. Now you don't have to qualify as a real estate professional. You just Mm -hmm. have to materially participate. A short term rental does not go on Schedule C. It stays on Schedule E, and that is not up for interpretation. That's how it works. It mm-hmm. only goes on Schedule C if you're providing substantial services to your guests. Otherwise, it's on Schedule E. It's a short term rental. It falls outside of Section 469, meaning that you can, if you want to, you can cost segregate it. And you can take the losses as non-passive as long as you materially participate.
1: I see. And and that in turn, you're alluding to that, all those losses, you can write it out against your earned income as well. Would that be a correct statement,
2: Brendan? Absolutely.
1: I see. I see. Got it. Now, uh, Brendan, what about, uh, let's say, if high income earners are uh, you know earning, right? And then uh, can they do anything uh, from entity structuring like maybe set up an llc and perhaps uh, you know do something to the extent that they can classify themselves as um, you know entrepreneurs and open some 40, uh, like solo 401k accounts and things like that can, can that be used as a hedge that you can maybe perhaps uh, uh, you know invest a lot more dollars into your 401k uh, something of that nature
2: good question and the answer is no so, setting up an LLC, setting up a business is generally you know, 90 times out of 99 times out of 100 not going to help you mm-hmm. uh, from a tax perspective. So I can set up an LLC and I still get to claim all the same expenses that I could claim if I didn't have an LLC. All I'm looking sure. for with expenses is was this a business expense? And I do not need any sort of LLC structure in place in order to do that. When we're talking about rental real estate, an LLC is not going to help you from a tax perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can put property into an LLC or you can own it personally and you're not, your tax situation is not going to change.
1: Right. LLC, as they say, is passed through directly, basically. Mm
2: -hmm. Exactly. Yep. It all passes through. So there's no real real, uh, change in your tax position. If you were to set up an S corporation or C corporation, now we're changing the tax position, but we wouldn't want to go that route with rental activities. We might go that route with a management company, something along those lines. Now your question about the solo 401k, mm-hmm. y- if you you don't need to set up a company to run a solo 401k, you just have to generate business income, self-employment income. So mm-hmm. I can go and offer, you know, tax services on a 1099 basis and that 1099 income can be contributed to a solo 401k I or I could mm-hmm. go and set up an LLC like Hall CPA PLLC. Mm -hmm. And I could offer services through that company and Mm -hmm. I can set up a solo 401k through Hall CPA. But the key is is that I have to be generating self-employment income. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. And and, uh, I guess it's assumed you're saying that uh, income generated off of that has to be then uh, invested back into uh, if you're, say, uh, let's say, uh, putting a solo 401k. So you cannot like really take your, uh, you know, your normal income and uh, invest it. W- would that be a correct statement?
2: So you can't take your W-2 income and put it into a solo 401k. No, you can, you cannot do that. Right, right okay
1: sounds good sounds good now um, staying on the passive investors uh, mind uh, brendan sometimes passive investors uh, kind of do not wrap their head around some of the tax benefits that come with it and and i'm more referring to let's say passive investors are investing in various syndicates and you know you see a paper loss a k1 statement at the end of the year can you maybe explain how that works and uh, you know just kind of give us some numbers uh, uh, in terms of, let's say, if I invest $50,000 or $100,000 in a syndicate, you know, obviously, you're getting cash flow and things like that. But at the year end, how does that sort of K-1 help you or uh, shows a negative number? Can you maybe delve into that?
2: Sure. So the simple answer is that in most cases, if I'm investing in a syndication, and I've got a negative number coming back as that that rental real estate income box on my K-1, Um, in most cases, it's actually not going to help me currently, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that it doesn't help me at some later point. So let's, let's explain this. So if I invest $100,000 into a real estate syndicate, let's, let's assume that I'm investing into a multifamily syndicate since that's the, those are the hot syndicates these days. Sure. Mm -hmm. So I invest a hundred K into a multifamily syndication. And, uh, and in, in the multifamily syndicate, they run a cost segregation study. And a cost segregation study, that what, what they're doing is they're basically saying, okay, we bought this property and we're going to depreciate it over 27 and a half years. But we know that not all the components within the property will actually last 27 and a half years. So let's run a cost segregation study to segregate the value of the acquisition between different depreciation uh, buckets, so different mm-hmm. life buckets, Sure. Uh, so, that we can get a more accurate representation of when the components within this property are actually going to um, die, essentially. Sure, so, sure. Mm-hmm. the cost segregation study takes the acquisition price and it cuts it up between a five, seven, 15, and 27 and a half year uh, depreciation life buckets. So, you, get, <laughs> you end up with these four buckets. Now, with the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, We now have 100% bonus depreciation. 100% Mm -hmm. bonus depreciation allows us to immediately expense via depreciation any component with a useful life of less than 20 years. So if we Mm -hmm. go back to that cost seg study, we're we're taking value out of the 27 and a half bucket and we're putting it into five, seven and 15 year buckets. Mm -hmm. And then we look at bonus depreciation and we realize, oh, we can 100% expense all that because it's less than 20 years. Wow. So what that happen, should be a large
1: percentage at that point, right?
2: Typically about 25 to 30% of the acquisition price. Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if I buy a million dollar property and I run a cost segregation study, I can typically bonus depreciate two hundred and fifty dollars to $300,000 in the first year. Wow. So if I'm an investor mm-hmm. in these deals, let's say I invest $100,000, my allocable loss that bonus depreciation is going to create a loss, sure, mm-hmm. for for the entity, not a not a not an operating loss, but a tax loss. Mm-hmm. And if I'm an investor in that deal, I'm going to get allocated a large portion of that loss. Mm-hmm. And if I put hundred thousand dollars in, my allocable loss might be ninety-two thousand dollars. Right. So mm-hmm. I get the K one, and it says that I lost ninety-two thousand okay. dollars, and it doesn't mean that I actually lost ninety-two thousand yeah. dollars. It just means from a tax perspective, I get to tell the IRS that I lost $92,000. So what can you do about that? Well, most limited partner investors can't do much with it unless they have other passive income. Right now we go back to section 469 Mm -hmm. and we look at section 469 and it says every rental activity is by default a passive activity. Mm -hmm. So this $92,000 loss that I have is passive and passive losses can only offset passive income or gain on sale from another passive activity. So I get this $92,000 loss and I look across my portfolio and I ask, do I have passive income or do I have a, uh, a gain on sale from a passive activity? And if I do, I might be able to use that loss. Mm-hmm. If I don't, and if I don't qualify as a real estate professional, right? So we're, mm-hmm. we're assuming that I work full time. My spouse works full time, right. but I don't qualify as a real estate professional. I can't use the loss. It, it's just a big fat $92,000. I might get a little upset or I might realize, Oh, this is going to be suspended and it's going to be carried forward indefinitely mm-hmm. until I can generate passive income or I have gain on sale that this loss can offset or until this activity is disposed of. So when this when this syndicate liquidates in mm-hmm. five years, mm-hmm. maybe my allocable gain is or my total allocable cash or gain is $150,000. Well, if I have this $92,000 loss that's been hanging out sitting on my books for five years, I can now offset my gain with that loss, so it will benefit me at some point, sure. uh, or I will at least claw it back. But um, but most limited partners, what they run into is they have to they have to suspend that loss until they can use it at some later point.
1: I see. Now on staying on that topic, uh, Brendan, uh, is this something then that uh, passive that uh, loss or that ninety two thousand dollar in our example, does that get uh, sort of uh, divided in a, on a prorated basis to all the passive investors and their portion gets uh, sort of written up on K1 and that's how those K1s get distributed to the all the passive investors. Is that kind of how it works?
2: Yeah, so, so I guess I should have been more clear. That I was talking about if that 92, if I had invested $100,000, then my K-1, my personal K-1 is going to show a $92,000 loss. So the $92,000 is coming out after that allocation has already been made. I see. So mm-hmm. get to that point, I might buy a $1 million building between three partners. Right. I might run a cost segregation study that creates a $300,000 loss. And then my allocable share of that three hundred dollars is $92,000.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. Right. That's that's pretty powerful. So in effect, we are talking about uh, if we kind of just step back is you invest one hundred thousand dollars, you're getting the cash flow on a monthly or quarterly basis, depending on whatever the syndicate is. But once the cost uh, study is done, you're potentially getting a large uh, sum that's uh, in negative number that's allocated to you so on one hand you have the positive cash flow but on the uh, on the other hand you're getting to write off that income by using uh, the the negative number on your k1 so that's that's pretty powerful actually at that point
2: <laughs> yeah absolutely and you know in, in future years you might be repositioning that multifamily asset right so the the multifamily asset might be producing net income for for the entity and and I might be allocated net income as a result of that in future years but if I have a $92,000 loss that's been suspended mm-hmm. then the future net income coming from this entity or or really any other passive entity I can I can offset that $92,000 loss with so I get $92,000 in income tax free mm-hmm. over the next you know however long it takes to use that loss
1: right right awesome uh, and now uh, Brandon uh, speaking of this bonus depreciation, right? Uh, is this going to stay for a long time? Uh, is it a permanent feature or is that something that's going to be phased out? Uh, how, how does that work?
2: Good question. So it is not permanent. It's going to be, it's going to, it will begin to be phased out starting in 2022. And it's going to be phased out over a period of time unless Congress extends it.
1: I see. Got it. Got it. Now, uh, let's talk about uh, 1031 exchange, Brandon. Uh, And and in in simple terms, it's your ability to basically defer your taxes and, you know, kind of leapfrog into bigger and better investments. Can you maybe uh, kind of maybe perhaps dumb it down and kind of share the benefits of it for passive investors, Brandon?
2: Sure. So a 1031 exchange comes from section 1031 of the internal revenue code. And that's where the name comes from. And you, you've you got it exactly right. It's just, I, I bought a property for $100,000. It's now worth $170,000. And I have two choices. I can sell it today and sure. I can recognize a $70,000 gain, or I can I can engage in a tax deferral strategy, one of which is a section 1031 exchange. So mm-hmm. I can sell the property, and then roll it into, say, a $200,000 property. So I sell it for one seventy. dollars I roll it into a $200,000 property, and I don't have to pay the tax today on that $70,000 spread from the mm-hmm. sale. Right. So I'm just basically deferring the recognition of my gain. And 1031s are, are quite powerful. I can 1031 forever, and then I can die. And then I can pass that that remaining asset down to my children, and they get a stepped-up basis in the asset. So Right. I could ten thirty one for you know five decades. Mm-hmm. So I start with a hundred thousand dollar property, and I could end up with a five million dollar property. But if I sold the five million dollar property, I'd have a really big gain, right? It's been, right. It's been built up over five decades. Mm-hmm. Now it's five million dollars, and if I sold that, it'd be an astronomical gain and an astronomical tax. But if I die and I pass it to my heirs, they get a stepped up basis equal to the fair market value of the property as of the date of my death. So if it's mm-hmm. worth five million dollars. And their basis increases to $5 million, meaning that they can sell it for $5 million. And since their basis is also $5 million, their gain is zero. Right. So 1031 mm-hmm. exchanges are a great way to, to actually, one, just defer recognition of tax on any sort of built-in appreciation. Mm-hmm. But also a really great way to, uh, it, it's good to integrate with estate planning and, and it's a good way to just start generational wealth.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, Now, uh, speaking of that at 1031, uh, Brendan, um, how about like, let's say, in your example, where we started, let's say, from 100,000, and you went on multiplying and climbing up the ladder. And eventually, you had a, let's say, a a fictitious property you sold at 5 million, right? And you, let's say, uh, went through property one through 10 before you were disposing of the 5 million property, right? Now, a a bit of an intricate question comes in is that, uh, let's say you were going from property one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and so on, right? And what if, if you were doing improvements to the property, you know, like, for example, let's say you buy a Uh, You started with 100,000, but as you went along in your chain of properties, let's say you bought a property for, uh, let's take another hypothetical example. Uh, At, let's say, property number four, you were at 1 million, for example. Uh, But then uh, for that 1 million purchase of the property, let's say you are again uh, adding another, let's say, 300,000 in uh, different improvements that you would have done. How does that uh, sort of work with the? Uh, basis. Like, does that mean that 1 million plus 300,000 you would have invested? Does that basis get stepped up to that number? Can you maybe kind of clarify some of that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So let's keep it really simple. Let's say that you started with $100,000. That was your basis. That was the fair market value. And then over time, you you never added another dollar to the property. And let's just also say that you never depreciated the property, which is not allowed, by the way. So take this example with a grain of salt. But mm-hmm. for for the purposes of simplifying the numbers, sure. you never depreciated the property. So. We get to this $1 million property. Mm-hmm. We've deferred our gain all along the way. Our basis is still 100K because we've never added another cent. We've never depreciated the property, which mm-hmm. is again, not correct. But sure, mm-hmm. we then add $300,000 of improvements to the property. So now we're all in for $1.3 million. Mm-hmm. The basis is going to be my original basis of 100K plus the improvements of 300K. So now my basis is 400K. So I've got a $1.3 million building with a basis of $400,000.
1: Right, right. So your basis is uh, I should correct myself. You're right absolutely right there that your basis is would be whatever is your gain is kind of you're considering that as a basis basically.
2: Well, no. So, so for tax purposes, the basis is the cost to Mm you and the built-in gain is what we're deferring, right? So we're rolling that over. So the built-in gain will not become my basis. And this is where it kind of gets confusing. It's like, well, wait a second. I put a million dollars. I own a million dollar property. So I put a million dollars into it, which is true, Mm -hmm. but you haven't paid tax on 900K of that. So it doesn't get to be counted as basis. You your your after tax income or your after tax cash that you ever put into this deal that was your original one hundred thousand dollars so that's your basis right and if you add an additional three hundred k via improvements now your basis is four hundred k
1: right right so your gain plus whatever investment you practically did becomes your stepped up basis I should clarify
2: oh well so if you are passing away and giving it to your heirs then your, your basis will be stepped up to whatever the fair market value of the property is. So let's say that you. Right,
1: right. In that example, you're correct. If you pass away, whatever is the eventual at that point, but yeah. in our example, let's say you're at property number fourth and you invested in our example, 300 K your original gain of hundred $300 that uh, I mean, 300,000 you would have invested in improvements. They get added up and combined. So is that, is that true?
2: Yeah, yeah. So your basis will will become, but your original basis plus any additional improvements you've made, that mm-hmm. will increase your basis. But most of the time, it's also going to increase your market value. So it's not going to reduce your gain if that makes sense right it's right not, right
1: yeah, it, it makes, makes sense. sense
2: yeah good unless and you make really bad improvements <laughs> non-value add improvements <laughs> right 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 makes sense
1: now uh, speaking of different property types within the uh, 1031 exchange brendan uh, can i maybe go from let's say a single family house to a multi-family and perhaps mm-hmm. going to let's say a self-storage or uh, some industrial property how does that
2: work You can go from real estate to real estate as long as there's investment intent. Yes. What you cannot do is you cannot exchange paper for real estate. So sometimes we run into folks that are invested in syndications. They own a stake in an LLC, which is a partnership, and they think that they can exchange or defer the gain coming out of that. And that is not true unless you run some pretty exotic strategies. So when you are invested in an LLC, you own paper, you don't actually own the underlying asset. And because you don't own the underlying asset, you cannot exchange your stake for real estate. You would be exchanging paper for real estate at that point, which is not allowed, but you can go land to single family homes, multifamily homes, commercial, you can go back to land, you can exchange real estate for real estate.
1: I see. Good, good. Thank you. Uh, Now, uh, Brendan, speaking of like, let's say for the active uh, real estate owners and things like that, uh, what are some of the steps for like bookkeeping or record keeping that you can recommend so that, uh, you know, we kind of stay compliant with, uh, you know, any of the IRS uh, audits or any questions that come along? Can you maybe give us some best practices uh, for bookkeeping and record keeping?
2: Yeah, well, I, I highly recommend that everybody use some form of an online uh, cloud-based software, whether mm-hmm. it's Google Sheets. You know, Google Sheets is nice because you can put it on your phone. Sure. Uh, or, mm-hmm. or it's QuickBooks Online or even youneedabudget.com. Like that's a great software. If you're not, if you're like a passive investor and you're investing in these syndications, youneedabudget.com could be a really good answer for you. You don't really need an accounting software. You only really need like QuickBooks Online if you are buying your own rentals or if you are the syndicator, like the deal sponsor in the syndicate and you're trying mm-hmm. to keep all the accounting records and do the investor reporting, that's when you need something like QuickBooks Online. But just get something cloud-based. And the key the key to success with record keeping is to just make it as simple as possible for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you just, you just need to create a system where you can scan a receipt and upload it to a folder and then be done with it. And for, for everybody, it's a little bit different, but the key is always using some sort of cloud-based system. If you don't use a cloud-based system, you run the risk of getting audited. I mean, you don't run the risk of getting audited because you're not using a cloud-based system, but if you get audited sure five years later, you're going to be looking for paper receipts that may not exist anymore. So you, you really need to kind of categorize it and uh, put it in an archive somewhere in the cloud.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, now, uh, moving on, Brendan, I know uh, your company does a lot of webinars and educational series and things like that. Tell us uh, more about that and how audience can learn more about it.
2: Yeah, so we, we have a ton of educational content. We have a podcast called The Real Estate CPA Podcast, where my co-host, Thomas Castelli, and I interview uh, a bunch of investors and we ask them tax and accounting questions. So that's always fun. <laughs> if you're investing in a syndication, you can, uh, you can email us and uh, recommend your deal sponsor to be asked all the tax and accounting questions. So it's uh, a, <laughs> it's a good way to uh, kind of see behind the scenes there. But yeah, we have 104 or five episodes at this point. So it 've been nice. running for a while about 30,000 listeners a month, which is really cool. Awesome. Uh, awesome. That's a big one. Then we have a YouTube channel that we update periodically and we also have a, a 10,000 word tax guide on our website, at least on our website as of today. But it's the ultimate guide to tax planning for landlords, 10,000 words, totally free. You can also download a copy. So we've been uh, been getting a lot of people doing that. But if you're ever interested in looking at any of that, looking up any of our content or getting in touch, just go to www.therealestatecpa.com.
1: Awesome. Awesome. And uh, thank you for all your advice, uh, Brendan. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, Is there any other contact information or anything you want to give to our listeners?
2: Therealestatecpa.com is where to go. You can connect with me on LinkedIn if you'd like. I think you can just Google Brandon Hall CPA LinkedIn and I should come right up.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it, Brendan. You are always a wealth of knowledge. I personally listen to your podcast as well. Uh, so it is a source of knowledge and thank you for your time today. I appreciate you
2: coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to premium cashflow, real estate investing podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.